0: So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and go to Luke chapter 11. If you have a Bible on your phone or in your hands, Luke chapter 11. We will have this on the screen as well. And as you're turning there, um, I was—I always think about how to what stories, what things have I been through or experienced that I, that I can share that maybe makes sense uh, with with what we're talking about. So, in college, I had the opportunity to be a resident assistant for a couple of years, an RA. Any any RAs? In the room, a couple of you. So if you don't know what an RA is, an RA, basically, my job was to oversee slash babysit um, a floor full of men. There were about 36 guys living on a floor, and uh, it, was a, it was a small Christian college. There was not a lot of problems, um, but there were, there were certain things that happened, and one of, the, one of the duties that I had that I absolutely hated, I don't know if you RAs have to do this, but we had to do random room checks like twice a month. Okay, so I had a sheet that was a list of potential violations, and I would go, and I would knock on the door, and if they weren't home, like I usually went when I knew they were gone, so then I could walk in, and, because otherwise, if they knew, they would be like shuffling and moving stuff, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder what they're doing. And, and so I, I would go in and kind of look around, and you're looking for certain things. You're looking for drugs and alcohol and girls hiding behind the shower curtain, and that happened, I'm not making that up, um, <laughs> So during one of these random room checks, I I walked into the apartment of six men and began looking around, and and I saw all these 20-ounce Mountain Dew bottles around, and I'm talking like 40 Mountain Dew bottles sitting around on shelves, in the windowsill, on the floor, and they had liquid in them, but it wasn't Mountain Dew. I could tell that it wasn't, I didn't know what it was, but I knew, because Mountain Dew is like that nuclear glow, and that was not this, okay? So I was like, okay, I got to find out what this is. So I unscrew the lid. Can you feel the tension in the room? Any guesses? No, that's what the first service said. It was not pee. You guys are, get your minds out of the gutter. It was actually 42 bottles of tobacco spit. Yeah, that's what I said. That's what I said, it was worse. Yeah, so I will never forget, literally, I was like, I'm getting paid to write down the violation as 42 Mountain Dew bottles full of tobacco stored in the dorm room, and they were fined for that. So my question today, as we jump in, do you know anybody that's a hoarder? Yes, okay, all right, don't look at your spouse. Uh, Several years ago, a lot of people, a few people actually, made a lot of money by producing a whole show about hoarders anybody any fans of the show hoarders if you've never seen the show I want to give you about a minute-long clip that will give you exactly what hoarders is all about so check this out
1: my name is Monty I live in a very upscale neighborhood and I'm keeping an absolute humongous secret I consider myself maybe a high-end, upscale, couture tie porter. This is my entryway. I'm using it as a closet. As you can see, I have shoes. I have lots of shoes. I love shoes. I don't even know how many pairs of shoes I have, but I've got one, two, three, four, five, As you can see, they still have tags on them. I have a shopping addiction. I um, am a shopaholic. 62, 63, 64. I shop and shop and shop, and then I work some more so I can shop some more. And then I shop, 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 shop. 139, and I still have... At least six other rooms that have this many shoes in them, if not more, I probably spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 on shoes.
0: So listen, while this show ran for about six seasons and was really built on the audience's fascination with people who are hoarders, this is truly an actual diagnosed condition that they call compulsive hoarding. Right? And it's defined as a pattern of behavior characterized by excessive acquisition and an unwillingness to discard large quantities of things. Right? So the, some of the descriptors, the experience, hoarders have a fear of missing out on certain things. What if I don't get it? What if I, I don't have it? They have a disinterest very quickly in what they have acquired. So they buy the shoes and then they leave the shoes. Right, They have an obsession with specific items. Did you hear? I have shoes. I have shoes. I love shoes. I like to buy shoes, right? So picture this. You walk up to that house, and you see how beautiful it is on the outside. Did you catch how, what, what the house looked like? It's big. It's spacious. It's, it's clean. It's expensive looking. But then you walk inside, and the world that lies behind the surface begins to stare you in the face. When I walked into that dorm room, the reality of those 42 bottles of tobacco spit staring me in the face, to me, and to you it sounds like, they seemed illogical. It doesn't make sense. Why would you keep those bottles? For the people living in that space, for whatever reason, they decided and they had a reason that they would keep them. And here's what I know about every single one of us, right? Every single one of us hold on to certain things when it comes to our lives. Some may be material things, but most likely, you hold on to things when it comes to your relationships, to your emotions, to your faith, the way you live your lives, just like the world's worst hoarder, we all have things that we grab onto. Every one of us has certain things that we hoard in our lives. Maybe for you, it's love. Many of us love people only when it feels safe. We, we're going to grab, we're going to protect our love, we're going to possess our love, and then only if you feel really safe to me will I choose to love you. Only, I know this is none of you parents, but you know those parents, right? When your child performs adequately, if they get the perfect score or, or the perfect athletic performance, then you extend the love to them. But all the other times, you're holding back some of that. Maybe it's your resources. You ever had people come and knock on your door? Can I borrow your... Don't you hate that? I hate that, right? I, my uncle told me that his mom used to... She would lend tools out. And then, you know, what happens when you lend a tool to somebody? They don't bring it back, right? So she would grab a switch off the tree, and she would go to their house and knock, and she'd say, can I, can I go into your garage? And she would go, and she would begin whipping the tool. The person is completely baffled. Why are you whipping the tool? She said, it's a bad tool. It never comes back to me. And she would teach them a lesson through that. Some of us, it's our resources. We hold back. Some of us, maybe it's your abilities. You, you have abilities that you just think, I can't put myself out there. I can't, I can't do that. I can't let that happen. You may not have, my point is this, you may not have 150 pair of shoes. I don't wanna know. Don't look at your wife, just look at me. You may not have that sitting in your living room, in your bedroom, in your bathroom. But I bet you've got some things in your life that you hold on to as tightly as anyone who was ever on that show. We're in a series that we've called What Would Jesus Undo? What would Jesus undo? What are the things that, that broke Jesus' heart, the things that made Jesus angry, the things that Jesus would look at and say, this is not right, this is not the way that things are supposed to be. Last week, we had a, a guest speaker. If you missed it, you need to go back and get the podcast. It was a powerful morning. Kevin Butcher came, and I, I think Kevin undid all of us. I, I've noticed in both services, nobody sits in those seats. Jason, you even moved down a couple. And, and, and I understand, it was just a powerful morning of, of God's love. And today, I wanna press further into that. We're going to look at a passage from Luke 11, and actually for the remainder of this series, we're going to spend the last couple weeks of the series looking at this passage, because this is a passage of scripture that I think most of you have probably never heard. Most of you have probably never looked in depth at this passage, and I know that because when we talk about Jesus and what he taught and what he did and the miracles he worked, we like the encouraging stuff. Right? Like, we like the inspiring things. We love the miracles of Jesus. We love the, the life-changing messages. What we don't often look at and what we miss and what we're going to look at the next couple weeks is a moment where Jesus gets absolutely ticked off. And I love that. Because I think a lot of times we think as, as Christ followers, we have to be nice all the time. And, and I just want to say to you, Jesus got angry. Amen? Doesn't that make you feel good? Some of you, okay, let's, are you guys awake? You're with me today? It like makes some of us feel better, right? That Jesus had emotions. And, and I want to look at what happens in this passage. So let's start at verse 37, and we'll dig in. It says this, When Jesus finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in, and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. So let me break this down for you because this is not about Jesus not washing his hands. That's gross. You should all wash your hands. This is something else. In the Jewish culture, when he would have been invited to this house, he was being brought to a place where they would share food. Now, at this time, the table was lower to the ground. I like this idea, by the way. They would lay on pillows and they would eat. Doesn't that sound great? And they're eating, they're eating. And he notices that Jesus didn't wash his hands. Now, let me explain. There was a process to this. Jesus would have washed his hands for cleanliness. But the Jews, especially the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had added a second layer of washing that was more about ritual and legalism than anything else. And so after you washed your hands the first time, when you sat down at the table, they would bring a bowl and you would actually dip your hands into this little, tiny space of water and you would lift them up and let the water drip down and back into the bowl. It was not about cleanliness. It was about ritual. And this Pharisee is looking at Jesus judging and saying, why is he not washing his hands? which I think begs the question, who are the Pharisees? Now, we hear the word Pharisee, and you've maybe have called, anybody ever called someone a Pharisee, or you've been called a Pharisee? You're acting like a Pharisee. We think of that as hypocritical. But I want to I explain to you briefly what the Pharisees were all about, because the Pharisees, if you were to equate anything with a Pharisee, it was the word purity. They were obsessed with, fascinated with purity, religious Purity. Now, in my upbringing as a a young Christian, when I was about 12 years old, I would attend Christian retreats. Anybody ever been to a Christian retreat? Church camp? Yeah, Vacation Bible School retreats? Yeah, we've been in those settings. So when I would go to a retreat, here's kind of how the retreat would break down. See if this sounds familiar. We would all get there on Friday night. We would go, and there would be other youth from other places, other churches, which meant the girls were looking at the boys, and the boys were looking at the girls, and we were trying to figure out, and the rule was no purpling. Boys are blue, girls are red, don't purple, and, and we would, that was kind of the rule, and so we'd show up, and, and, and that first night as we're all like engaging in this, the speaker would speak, and they would talk about, hey, invest in being here, quit looking at the girls. That, that's kind of what would happen. And then Saturday, we'd wake up, and we would go, and we would enjoy the day. We'd play games. We'd compete. We'd do all this stuff, still looking at the boys and girls. And then Saturday night, you'd get what's called, probably Young Life does this, the cross talk. You would actually present to the students the message of salvation, the hope of Jesus. If you turn and you give your life to Jesus, you can go to heaven, right? It's one of those retreats that I actually prayed the prayer for the first time to ask God to invade my life and committed myself to him. And it was all about the condition of eternity. We want to see you go to heaven. The Bible promises this. There's judgment if you don't. And then Sunday morning, after the cross talk, we would be told what purity looked like when we returned home. Right. So don't forget, when you reengage your world, when you leave this camp, you've had a mountaintop experience. Now, when you go home, don't forget to take purity with you. Go, and, and you may need to leave some things. You may need to step out of relationships. This is why a lot of teenagers went to church camp and then came back and broke up with the boyfriend or girlfriend. Anybody have that experience? Yes. Okay. (coughs) Sounds like there's some pain in that. This is why some teenagers would go and then they would, they would take their secular CDs and break them, right? Because God wanted you to be pure and why would you listen to the devil's music? There's still CDs. I'm like, I wish I had those back. They were so good. And we understand that, right? So purity in that religious sense at that time was about getting to eternity and cleaning out our lives. The Pharisees' obsession with purity, with purity was a little bit different. The Pharisee purity said, you know what, this is not about eternity. The Pharisees wouldn't go around saying, hey, turn or burn, sinner's. God has a plan. He's going to take you to heaven if you follow him, but don't. if you don't, you're going to burn it out. They were actually concerned about something different, and I'll tell you why, because number one, they were Jewish, and to be Jewish meant that for hundreds of years, you had a land, you had a space that was yours, you were a people, you were an ethnic group, you were actually God's people, but for hundreds of years, you had not been in control of yourselves. Instead, you had been dominated by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans in Jesus' day. And so for the Pharisees, they lived their religious life not trying to be hypocritical, but rather trying to be so pure that God would actually fulfill the promises of the Old Testament and the Torah and come back and dominate Rome, get them out of the land, so that the Jews could actually be the people God called them to be. So the Pharisees' pursuit of purity was not necessarily about eternity, but about the present. And you know what that played out as? It became very, very religious And very, very political does this sound like our culture today. So picture Christianity in politics today, right? Think about all the hundreds and the maybe thousands of denominations that exist. Think about the opinions that specific Christians share in the media. Think about how one group that disagrees so clearly with another group and how both of them call themselves Christian. You ever been confused by that? And how they couldn't be more different than they actually These were the Pharisees. One writer said they were the religious culture warriors of their day. They loved to argue. They loved to debate. To me, this sounds so familiar to our world, right? The evangelicals being posed on this side, the the liberals being posed on this side. Some of you love this group. Some of you hate this group. Some of you love this group. Some of you hate this group. This is the very way of thinking that I think in this moment, in this passage, Jesus steps in and says, I'm going to undo some of this thinking. So let's look at verse 39. That's all intro, by the way. (laughs) Somebody's like, I'm hungry. Verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So Jesus confronts. He steps into this moment, this first part. He gets frustrated And he confronts this way of thinking that the Pharisees, and he starts to call out where it's faulty. He begins to undo their mentality. And it starts with this. He says, you're concerned about cleaning the outside and leaving the inside dirty. I'm going to break this. I'm going to give you an example of this, right? In my house, we buy this stuff that's like smoothie juice. You know what I'm talking about? Like pure and healthy and lots of sugar that tastes good, but the kids think it's really sugary and it's actually good for them. Everybody know what I'm talking about? And we have smoothies. And so what happens, because smoothies are great, everybody loves a good smoothie, and then I come home at 2 p.m., and I find there's the smoothie cup, and the smoothie cup has not been put in the sink, it has not been rinsed out, and now it's crusty smoothie. Anybody with me? Yeah? Okay, all right, so this is what Jesus is saying. Look, if you came to my house... And I said, hey, I'm so glad you're here. I've got the cleanest cup on the outside that you've ever seen. The glass is so clean. What would you like to drink? And you say, well, I want a glass of water. Okay, well, that's great. Let's get some water for you. The glass is perfect. I noticed in the first service, this is a WWE cup. I don't know why that's here, but thank you for your donation to New Community. And you take the glass, and I fill it with water, and all over the inside is this crusty smoothie junk. You've got your water. You've got your green crusty smoothie junk. Now, you say, well, what are you feeding me that you're giving me this? Well, it's a clean glass. I spit shine the outside. It's ridiculous, right? This is what Jesus is getting at. He says, you know what? You are so concerned at cleaning the outside, at cleaning the performance stuff, the stuff that everybody else sees. But the inside is full of junk. See, I think for so many of us, our Christianity, our faith in Jesus happens at the surface level. It happens on the outside where we want to convince everybody and, and God, even himself, that we are clean, we are shiny, we are pure. And we end up spit shining these cups. Oh, God, look, I, I was in church three weeks this month. Don't I look good? God, don't I look good? God, look, I, I even stopped saying the bad words for a whole week. I didn't have to put any corners in the swear jar. Look at me, God. Look at what I did. God, I turned on K-Love for six hours. Like the Shekinah glory came into my car. It was wonderful. God, look how clean I am. God, look at at all that I've done. See, ultimately, what we do with those things is we start what I call performance-based Christianity. We set up a measuring rod in our spirituality. See, if it's only about the outside of your cup and getting that clean, what you do is you constantly compare your cup to everyone else's. Well, my cup's not, I mean, my cup's not perfect, but it's sure clean. than that guy, that girl, their, their cup is pretty dirty, right? Like, that, that's, there's a lot going on there. I don't talk like they do. I, I, don't, I, I don't go as far physically in my dating relationship as other Christians. So we feel fairly clean. But here's what Jesus makes clear. And I want you to grab this day. Please don't miss this. You can have the cleanest outside on the planet and be completely jacked up on the inside. Amen. You can have the cleanest out all. Don't you meet people and you're like, man, they just got it all together. And then two years later, their life falls apart and you go, I had no idea that was going on on the inside. Had no idea. Jesus would say this. You can be in church every single Sunday and be filled with hate for the person sitting right next to you. That's the reality. You can serve as one of the best kids town leaders we've ever seen. And you can be completely consumed with wickedness. You can be the Christian, fill in your names, I said Ken and Barbie, dating couple or married couple and be living in a perpetual state of sexual or relational brokenness because the inside is what God wants to deal with. Jesus is actually calling out the shortcomings of this purity based way of thinking. He's actually looking at the Pharisees, he's calling out the hypocrisy of anyone who thinks the concerns of God end at the surface level behaviors and practices that define our lives. And then of course, as Jesus always does, he goes on and he enters this section where we'll be for the next couple weeks and it's known as the woes of Jesus. Everybody say woe. Now, not like woe like a horse, like woe, W-O-E. It's the woe. It's a warning. It's a calling out, a confrontation of the things that he says. You better take notice of this. You better listen up. Don't miss this. This is the moment, parents, where you speak to your kid and you use their middle name. You know what I'm talking about? This is the moment where Jesus says, it's time for you to pay attention. Look at verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So if the intro to these, these woe statements is about the outside and the inside of the cup, the woes are the actual specifics. It's where Jesus says, here's, here's the pieces of junk that sit inside your cup. I want to I pick this apart for you. So let's talk about this first one. This is the only one we're going to talk about today. Now, I don't know whether you've been around church world before, but, but let me just informally quiz the room. How many of you have heard the word tithe and know what it means? Tithe? Okay. So it's okay if you didn't. I didn't till I took a job in a church, right? That, I, didn't, I didn't know what that meant. And, and I want to say this is not a money sermon, so don't stress out, okay? But this was a word that I grew up hearing and I didn't really understand until I took a job in the church and I started to get this idea. And I don't have time to show you. You can go back to the Old Testament and explain kind of where it comes from. But it's the idea that in God's world, he wants us with everything that we have to give at least 10% of that to him. So in an agricultural society, you would raise crops and they would give a 10% of their crop, of their harvest. They would bring animals to sacrifice to God. If they had financial resources, they would give 10%. It's a tithe, a 10% back to God. And it was given to glorify him and to say, God, we trust you to take what is ours and give it back to you. And I will say this, you think tithing is hard in our world? It's never been easy. There's never been a culture where God was like, hey, you guys got the tithing thing. That's never happened. Everybody's always pushed back on that. But here we find Jesus speaking to this in a different way. He's not saying, hey, you people really need to give your 10%. Instead, he's talking about mint and rue. I don't even know what rue is. Any gardeners in the room? Herb gardeners? All right, here's the deal. I do know what mint is. This is a piece of mint, I promise. Okay, this is mint. smells really good. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, you are sitting down with the crops of your garden, and not just the big crops. You're not sitting down with the corn and the potatoes. He says, you're sitting down with these small leaves, and you're going, okay, there's two, there's three, there's five, six, seven, eight, nine, there's a lot, there's there's ten. Now, God, you get one. He says, you're sitting around counting little leaves, and you might say, "Well, well, okay, I'll give God the big leaf, and I'll keep nine of the others." He says, "You're counting. You're, you're counting your tenth of your leaves, and all the while, injustice is happening. There are people suffering. There are people who need the love of God." He says, "You're so focused on counting leaves that you've neglected the love of God and justice." Now, he, th- this brings me to what I want you to, to write down. If you're taking notes, write this down. Put it in your phone. Don't. This is the central thing today. What you give to Jesus is meaningless if you're holding his love back from the world. I'm going to say that again. What you give to Jesus, what you offer to Jesus is meaningless. It's absolutely worthless if you're holding his love back from the world. See, I told you at the beginning of today that all of us hoard these certain things, but I want to press a little more clearly here into one area because I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but listen, many of you, when it comes to your experience of God's love, you have become hoarders. You have become people who have swept up God's love and said, it's me, it's what it's meant for, it's all for me. And I want you to understand this because Jesus in this passage looks at some of the most religious church-going people in the world. These are not the people who are in church once a month. or Chris, They're not the Christers, Christmas, Easter, you know what I'm talking about. He's, these are the people who are there every single Sunday, who are standing at the door greeting, who are serving in kids' town. So if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, listen, you're off the hook. I'm not going to say anything that's going to make you feel guilty today. You can actually amend this church service because I'm talking to the religious people. These are the religious people that Jesus looks at and he says, you are neglecting the things that matter. Now, let me tell you about this word, neglect. It's the Greek word, pererkomai, And it means actually to walk by something and pass by it, to look away, to not pay attention. Now, here's what I love about the Bible, okay? This is one of the things I think is so cool. Just a chapter earlier in Luke 10, Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. And this is the story that most clearly demonstrates this. Listen, this parable, you can go back and read it this week. Here's the gist. The parable of the Good Samaritan, there's a man on a road traveling. He gets attacked, he gets beaten, he gets robbed, and he gets left to die by the side of the road. And Jesus says, this man is there on the side of the road dying, and then you've got this priest, this religious person, who comes by and he walks and he sees what's happening and he steps to the other side. It doesn't say he just walked past him. It says he walked to the other side of the road. The Levite, another religious person, comes by. He does the same thing. He steps to the other side of the road. Perer kameh. They neglect the need. And then he says there's the good Samaritan. Now, the Jewish people saw Samaritans as a half-breed. They saw them as a lesser people, the outcast, the people they didn't want to intermingle with. And the good Samaritan comes and says the good Samaritan bends down and bandages his wounds and puts salve on the wounds and picks the guy up and takes him on his horse or his mule. And he takes him to a place where he now has a place to stay and heal and get better. And he says, I'll come back and I'll pay whatever it costs. I want this person who was dying, who was bleeding, who suffered injustice to now be made well. So the story of neglect that Jesus tells in the Good Samaritan, he now calls out in the next chapter to the Pharisees that he's confronting. He says, you're neglecting, what are you neglecting? Justice and God's love. Justice and God's love. So you know what I think Jesus wants to undo for us today? Is the fact that we have a tendency to hoard the love of God in the places where we should be pouring it out. When I watched that hoarder's video I have lots. There are lots of problems I see there. I hope you do too. If you don't, we need to talk and do some counseling. Okay. But one of the biggest problems I see is that all those shoes, I've been in third world countries where people don't have shoes. That's, that's the biggest problem I have. And I go, you know, all that stuff that we're hoarding could be given to people who actually need it. And, and, and you all, and this has happened most services, I say that and you all nod your heads in agreement. You agree with me. That, that's, that's good fruit, right? We can agree with that. And yet, We hoard the love of God and the justice of God away from those who are in the most need of it. When I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I've got about three things that I think we can describe hoarders and make that apply. And I started with the first one and it added like 15 pages to my sermon. So I was like, ah, we'll just do one so everybody can still eat lunch that day. So I got one point that I wanna make and then we're gonna get out of here. It's a good point, so hang in there. Hoarders want possession. This is the biggest problem with hoarding God's love away from the world is what I know about hoarders and us as Christians is we love when it means us. The best sermons, you guys think the best sermons I give are the sermons where I talk about God's love and how it relates to you. I never get more positive feedback than when you come to me and you say, oh man, when you preached about God's love and how it changes our lives and how God accepts us, he adopts us, he makes us his own. That's so beautiful and I needed to hear that. We love God's love, don't we? We love God's love for us. I hear this all the time. I pick on you guys about this all the time. I'm a hot mess, but God loves me. I don't know what a hot mess is. I don't even understand what that, can I be a cold mess? Like what? But you just say, I love that God loves me. But here's the opposite side of that. I don't get as much feedback on the messages that call us to pour out God's love to people because that means we have to give away what we think we possess, See, I, anybody ever? Well, let me ask it this way. How, how many parents in the room? How many of you have babysat children? How many of you have actually ever seen a child? Okay, so we're all connected on this illustration. Well done. All right. One of the things you learn very quickly about children when you give them something, when you give them a toy specifically, they learn this word that brings the world to its knees. Are you with me? And you hear it when someone comes to them and says, "Hey, I want to play with that toy. Can I play with that toy? Will you share that toy with me?" Sharing is caring. My teacher said so. What can you? Can I have that toy? And the child learns this single word. What is it? Mine. Right? It's mine. No, you can't have it. It's mine. But the thing is, God has put love into our lives, and we have forgotten that we're supposed to get rid of that childish instinct because we walk around thinking when God's love enters our life, that it's ours. And I want to say this to you. God's love in your life still belongs to God, and he wants it poured out on the world. See, God didn't give you his love so that you could walk around going, oh, look, look, God loves me. Look, this is my testimony to Jesus. God loves me. Look, God loves me. Look how messy I am, how broken I am, but God loves me. Well, can I have some of that? No, it's mine. See, God gave you his love so that it could be turned around and given to the world. So if anyone gets to say mine, it's God. It's not you. We picture our kids running around snatching toys from each other, screaming, mine. But when it comes to God's love, here's what I picture God doing right now in the American church. That's what I think. God is running around going, that's my love, and I told you to give it away, and you won't give it away, so I'm taking it back, and I'm going to pour it out to the world. It's mine. If there's anything we learn from this story of the Good Samaritan, I hope you see this. Love walks toward the mess, not around it. I wish that was original. I stole that completely from somebody. Isn't that good? (laughs) (laughs) Love walks toward the mess, not around it. I I wonder, when's the last time you walked toward a mess instead of around it? See, I think we're really good at Pere Kameh, stepping away, neglecting, instead of walking towards the mess. See, I, I love this place. I love you as the people of new community, and I know this. Listen, if you don't know this, you need to know this. Every single Sunday that we gather, there are messes that walk in our door, amen? Even if you just know that's you. Like, we are messy. We are a messy people, and here's what we have to always remember. The messes among us need people who at every level will walk towards them, will stoop down, will bandage their mess, We'll carry them where they need to go to find healing. We need to walk towards the mess, and I want you to hear this. Some of you think, "Well, you show up in church, and I can't, I can't do anything for God. I don't know enough about the Bible. I can't preach. I don't, I I don't like kids, and I don't want to serve in the nursery. So, what am I going to do?" Some of you just need to hear this. You could make an incredible, eternal difference if you simply befriended someone in this building that you know has some mess going on in their lives. If you just became a friend. Half the people who walk, I would say 80% of the people who walk in these doors as visitors are not looking for a message about Jesus, they're looking for a friend. That's what they're looking for. And if you think you can't make an eternal difference, let me tell you how you can make eternal difference immediately. Before you leave today, subtly, not right now, this is awkward, right? Look and find someone alone and go befriend them. Go befriend them. You'll make an incredible eternal difference. See, when you're hoarding God's love and the justice God cares about, your experience of Jesus is all about possession. It's all about you. It's about the worship that makes you comfortable. I like the music there. That's what I like. Well, I like piano music. I like organ music. I like pews. Pews are awesome. It's all about you. It's about showing up on the Sundays that feel really easy to get out of bed and don't make your schedule crazy. Can we get real uncomfortable for a minute? I just, it was just, I just, we had a crazy week. The schedule's nuts, so we just slept in. Really? Really? I mean, can you, like, just go with me for a minute? I know this is harsh, but you gotta go with me. What if Jesus said that when the, they gave him the cross? I had a busy week. I was up all night praying. Can somebody else carry it? Seriously? I mean, both services have laughed. It's not a joke. <laughs> I hope we hear that. It's about feeling like the words of Jesus are always directed at you. Oh, God said this to me. God loves me. God, It's all about your possession. But what if Jesus meant what he said in this passage? What if the neglect that we've practiced when it comes to God's love and justice is because we thought we could possess those things? I was so challenged this week by a message from a friend about giving the church back to God, giving the church back to Jesus. And he said some things that just tied directly to this today. And I want you to hear this. Listen, I know every single week in this room, we have a spectrum of folks with amazingly diverse view of the world, from religion to economics to politics. There, there are every party and non-party is here. I get it. But I wanna say this clearly to you as I can, and I'm happy to talk. This is one of those things, if you wanna sit down and talk, I'll, we'll go to lunch, we'll talk about this. Please hear this well. You don't get the right to neglect love and justice because it doesn't line up with your way of thinking. That's not your right. That's not what God calls us to. You don't get the privilege to say, well, I don't, I don't agree with that, so I don't have to do that. You don't get to neglect love and justice because it does not line up with the way you think. There are biblical justice issues that were biblical justice issues long before they were co-opted political issues. There are things that God said, this is wrong, universally this is wrong, and these are biblical kingdom issues and not political Issues. So hear me well, long before you were Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, confused, angry, cynical, hopeful, whatever you want to fill in, there are biblical justice issues. And I want you to understand this. The Bible says that we are to engage those justice issues, to love those, just, to, to step into those things. And if we don't, we are in sin Right? There are sins of commission, right? You commit sins, you lie, you cheat, you steal, whatever. There are also sins of omission, so you omit. You choose not to engage. These are the justice issues, and I know that's strong, but you can't miss this. Listen, God created people, and people matter to God, amen? And so when people are diminished by people, that is injustice, and God's people are called to step into those things, to walk towards the mess, not around it. Now let me tell you biblically, universally through the Bible, you can read the whole Bible and you're gonna see three groups that continue to emerge in the Bible as people that God cares specifically about. It's orphans, it's widows, and it's foreigners. Those are the people that God again and again and again, he says, this is what justice looks like. So can I make this even more uncomfortable? We'll Just give you some examples of this. Listen, right now, There are 27 million human beings in the world today held in active slavery, active slavery. And a large portion of them are children being forced to engage as sexual prostitutes. That's a reality. I don't care about your politics. That's a reality. It has been over 1,500 days, 1,500 days since a city in Flint, Michigan has had clean water to drink. To drink. There are 6,000 children in our state waiting to be adopted or to be put in foster care for one home that would love them. I don't care about the systems. I don't care about the politics. That's injustice. There are people of color across our country who feel unsafe and raise their children to be wary of systems of protection and enforcement that you will never have to fear simply because of the color of your skin. I just want to say that to you. There are immigrants among us. I have pastor friends right now that I could introduce you to who have emergency plans in place so that if there's a government raid on illegal aliens, they all meet at the church so families aren't split up. That's reality. There was, in a period of 10 years, in one town in our state, two pharmacies received 21 million prescription painkillers. The population of the town is 2,900 people. Now let me just say this: Some of you, as I read those things, some of you immediately began to defend your opinions. You began to label me as conservative or liberal or too political. Listen, some half of you think I'm conservative, half of you think I'm liberal. You all need to get together and make an agreement so you can judge me adequately. <laughs> I've been told. Listen, I've been told you should shut up and stick to religion. But I, I'm just going to say this to you: If those, if that was your first reaction rather than compassion and heartbreak, then you didn't truly grasp the weight of what Kevin Butcher talked about as God's love last week because God's love was only given to us so it could be poured out to the world. Listen, I don't care who our president is. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care who's elected. I don't care what you label me. I don't care about getting pigeonholed. I care that in our world, in our country, in our state, and in our own community, there are people bleeding by the side of the road, and I'm tired of seeing people who should understand love and compassion better than the rest of the universe, neglect them, and walk by on the other side. It's time to do something. I've wrestled all week with how to close this and... um, I want to share. I just want to share where where Carrie and I and our family is um, as honestly as I can, and I want to explain to you what we've been walking through, practically learning about this, not to lift us up. I, so I pray. I, I, literally, I've prayed today. Please don't let this be about us. But I want you to just understand. If you've been here, you, you know we're in the adoption process. And, you know, we've been walking through this and pursuing a child from Burundi, Africa and, and kind of trying to figure out what that looks like. And, and it's so slow. It's like we should have started when we were 20 because we'd have them by now and everything would be good and I'm getting old. And, and I, and I got to tell you, probably the biggest obstacle for us has been the, the issue of the financial financial piece of it, right? So there's the reality is when it comes to adoption and internationally where we're headed, it, it's going to cost us over about $30,000. Pretty crazy, and I don't I don't say that. I don't like talking about it. You don't need to know my finances. I, I get all that. And some of you are sitting here going, well, why don't you adopt in state? There's more of a need. And, I, and I, the only reason I can tell you that we didn't is because God has called us to this step, to Burundi, Africa. And, and so you, you adopt from this state. There's lots of kids. They could use the help. But, but here's the thing that I want to share with you. When we entered this process, we knew the weight of the cost. And we're... we're doing fundraising, we're going to be doing all that, and, and looking for, you know, kind of the tribe to come around us, and help us, and figure all that out, but I got to tell you, it has been terrifying. Josh, you can go ahead and come. It has been terrifying to me to just figure out, like, what, how are we going to do this? Because I don't know if you know this or not, pastors are not wealthy. If they are, they're probably unethical. Like, that's, that's kind of the tension of ministry. Um, so, I just want you to grab onto this because what we're learning as a family is when you start to, to live in a way that says radical generosity is the norm, right? It's not, it's not crazy in the kingdom of God. It's normal. Does that make sense? Like what we think is, oh, I can't believe that person gave everything away and they pursued God and they followed God. We go, that's so nuts. And as the more I'm reading scripture and seeing the, the, the way that Jesus lived and what Jesus did, I, I'm going No, radical generosity, whether it's money, time, resources, talent Again, this is not a money sermon. I'm not guilting you into giving. If you think I am, go give somewhere else. I'm guilting you into radical generosity with your life. Because what we're learning is every step that we take towards being a loving family and a a people that want to be about justice is that God has richly returned the blessing on us. Now, that's not prosperity gospel. I'm not saying if you give financially, God's going to give you financially. No, that we're still not rich. Like, that's going to happen. What I'm saying to you is this. Over the past six months, the first step of this adoption has been about $18,000. And if you'd have told me six months ago that, was going to, that we were going to figure out how to do that, I'd have said, you're nuts. Like, we have no idea. There's no way that we have that money. I've never had that much money at one point in my life, ever. Like, there's no, I've never opened a checking account and been like look, I've got $20,000, have you? No, I've never done that. I don't even, I can't even fathom a million dollars. But I'm telling you, we started this journey and the first step, they said, here's the contract and it's $6,000. And we had saved that. We were ready for that. And we basically, God's call to us was, are you gonna, it, <laughs> this is the thing, and this is so non-biblical, but the thought that has been in my head of God speaking, are you smoking what you're selling? <laughs> that's, that's been the thing that's echoing in my life. Are you really truly going to stand up and preach about this stuff every week or are you going to live it? And I'm telling you, like we took that step and it was like, okay, well, there goes savings. What are we going to do? I'm telling you, in the past three months, the $12,000 more has just come. I had a, a former youth student call me and say, hey, we love what you guys are doing. We'd love to make a donation to it. They're young. I said, okay. The next day, there was a $1,000 gift. It's just mind blowing. And I don't, again, please, I don't say that to lift us up. I'm not, there are things that we got to figure out and try to fix and make better in our life. And, you know, we fight all the time. Like, I get that. But I want to say to you, there's a radical generosity that is the norm in the kingdom of God. And when we undo this possession mentality, when we stop trying to clean the outside of our cups and we say, God, look, this is all the junk and it's gross and it's nasty, but I want you to clean it out. God, I want you to put me in a place where where that stuff is just being stripped away and you just are ongoing, just repeatedly saying, hey, I've got more for you, I've got generosity. Here's the coolest thing, it's so fun. There's no better way to live. I'm telling you, some of you are so stressed out about your finances, about your bills, about your time, about the relationships, and I'm saying, you know why you're stressed out? How stressed out are the kids going, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. You ever notice those kids aren't happy? They think it's theirs and they're going, no, it's mine. You can't have it. You can't have it. Get away. They're throwing fists. They're getting, when you give it away, you got empty hands and God can do whatever he wants. He can fill those hands with whatever he wants. It was never ours to possess. God's love was never ours to possess. So why do we think it is? As we close today, I, I didn't really have a good ending. I hate to say that, <laughs> but I don't. And there are some Sundays that I want to prescribe for you some things to be thinking about. Today, I just want to trust that God's spirit is going to speak to you. I just want to trust that God's spirit is maybe has maybe been at work already in this service. And Josh is going to sing a song that I think says, what I've said for the past 35 minutes, says it a lot better in four minutes. And I want you to process, what, Just maybe just pray, just Jesus, what do you want to say to me? What, do you, what have I been possessing? What have I been holding on to that you want me to give away? what is the radical generosity that you've called me to? Maybe it's just opening up my heart to trust again. Maybe it's just relating to somebody. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's things that God would just say, I want you to clean out. I want you to stop hoarding all these things away from the world because there's injustice that you see. You might hear me talk about those things and go, I just need to read a book about human slavery. I just need to start learning outside of my favorite news media about the truth of what's really going on. And then maybe God's gonna lead you to act. I don't know, I don't know what it is. I'd love to pray with you. I'll be in the back during the song. If you, wanna, if you just want to explore, discern together, I'd pray with you. But I'm trusting in this place right now, God's spirit is at work saying, don't walk to the other side of the road. Don't neglect it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.